CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Friday, May 5th, 2023. Uh, here is a uh, headline uh, in the, the newspaper, the Chicago Sun-Times, home delivered every day uh, to my house anyway. Uh, Dave McKinney, Good friend of the show. Shout out Dave McKinney, WBEZ, writes about uh, Michael McClain, uh, who is a former state rep and uh, confidant of Michael Joseph Madigan uh, and was one of the Madigan Four, the Commonwealth Edison Four, whichever one, you, however you want to frame it, who were convicted in federal uh, court uh, earlier this week uh, for their roles in a bribery attempt, uh, comment bribing Michael Joseph Madigan. Uh, the former House Speaker, to get him to support passage of a rate hike that apparently was unjustified. They didn't get into that part of the case. Was the rate hike justified? If it was not justified, why did Republicans vote for it? Uh, they, they weren't even bribed and they voted for it. Uh, anyway, uh, this is the part that, that caught me. Every now and then something just like triggers my inner Republican. I think there's an inner Republican in us all. Even my distinguished guest may have an inner Republican. Uh, and here is the inner Republican. Uh, this is what drew that inner Republican. All right, here we go. Uh, McLean, uh, a top confidant of Madigan, was found guilty on nine counts as part of a scheme by comment to bribe Madigan to help advance the power company's legislative agenda. But he's also a former state rep, and as such, he's a pensioner. In other words, he gets an annual pension. I don't know how it comes annually or monthly. I do not know that. So he gets a pension payment paid for by you, me, my distinguished guests, and everybody else in the state of Illinois. Uh-oh, harumph. I feel my inner Republican. Since drawing the taxpayer-funded retirement benefit, Dave McKinney writes, in 2002, McLean has received more than $313,000 in pension payments. That is approaching nearly nine times the roughly $35,000 McLean contributed to the state-funded perk, which arose from his time as Illinois State House member between 73 and 83. So let me get this straight. 
The dude was state rep for 10 years, 1973 to 1983, kicked in about $35,000 to the pension fund, and has since drawn $313,000. I'm like, why do state reps even get pensions? I don't understand. I mean, I thought pensions, I understand the need for pension. I wish I had a pension. I'm sure my distinguished guest wishes she had a pension. Pensions are to help us when we get old. We're all going to get old. But, like, the dude was state rep for 10 years. He had another job. Like, what does he need a state pension for? And then here's the issue. That is where it gets the issue, okay? So, following this, ladies and gentlemen, uh, so you would figure that a man convicted of bribery would lose his state pension, okay? But, no, it's uncertain whether he loses it. It'll be up, I suppose, to what, Kwame Raul, the uh, attorney general. Uh, and the issue is, wh- did he do the wrongdoing while being on the job? Uh, in other words, was his wrongdoing uh, related to his role as a state rep? And in other instances, Kwame Raul has ruled that, no, the wrongdoing in the case of Terry Link, uh, a state senator who was a died on corruption charge, convicted on corruption charges. Uh, State Representative Edward Acevedo of Chicago, uh, convicted of federal tax evasion. Their wrongdoing was not related to what they did on the job, and so they can keep their pension. So there's a likelihood that uh, he will rule that way for McLean. And I'm like, what a ridiculous, absurd ruling. Uh, Of course it's related to his on-the-job work. He was the, like, the go-between between Mad Madigan and Commonwealth Edison and all the other people who were like getting money from and jobs from Commonwealth Edison. He had that position by virtue of the fact that he was a state rep for 10 years and became a close associate of Michael Joseph Madigan. Absolutely assert he would not have been in that position had he not been a state rep. He traded on the access to Madigan that he obtained when he was a state rep. Of course it's related. And of course he shouldn't have a pension. <laughs> I know you think folks think uh, I'm just saying that because I don't want my tax dollars going to it. Uh, but, you know, that's partly true, but it's also, I think, partly the principle. Anyway, without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce herself. And then I'm going to put her in the hot seat and ask her what she thinks about this burning issue. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hey, I'm Ramana Hussein. I'm a columnist and editorial board member at the Chicago Sun-Times. Yes, and a regular guest on the Ben Jarofsky Show. And uh, the author of a Sun-Times editorial about the Madigan Four, the Commonwealth Edison Four, whatever they're called. So you're on the hot seat, Ramana Hussein. If you were Attorney General Kwame Raul, would you rule in favor of Michael McClain keeping his pension, or would you rule against it? Go. I would think that I would rule against it because, you, you know, here here is someone who's convicted of a crime, a federal crime. And uh, I think in most cases, if this was not a person who held a white collar job, um, they would they would probably be stripped away from a lot of the benefits that they received before if they received any. Like if there was, so was like a run of the mill, you know person, um, a regular person, a regular Joe, not someone of prominence, I think that they, a lot of their privileges would be taken away. You know, when you sit through like court hearings, um, even when someone gets charged with a crime, 
that are restricted from certain things, um, you know, at the bond court hearing level. This is even before they're convicted of something. So they get a lot of a lot of things taken away from them. There's a lot of rules and regulations. So you would think that someone who was convicted of this sort of crime of bribery would get their pensions taken away. I would think that that would be the way to go, but we'll, we'll have to see because I'm sure like you mentioned before, uh, you know, the people ruled other otherwise. So it might, it might, that might, people might use that as, you know, his lawyer, I'm sure McLean's lawyers or whoever is going to vouch for him will argue in that way too. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he still gets to keep his pension. Uh, I, uh, I wouldn't be surprised either. Uh, <laughs> Illinois being in Illinois. Uh, and, I, um, I've been fuming lately, uh, <laughs> as I'm apt to do, I get on these bents and I just can't get off from Ramana. Uh, and so I'm outraged by the Commonwealth Edison four and the way Michael Joseph Madigan ran business. Uh, and, uh, like most baby boomer journalists who cover politics, been writing about this stuff for years. And it's sickening. And yet, I just, I'm just continually struck by the double standards that exist where Democrats get punished for stuff that Republicans get away with. And I'm talking about the ongoing scandals of Clarence Thomas. The last one that broke, I talked about it at length in an earlier show, is an ex- almost, a, it's a very similar to the Commonwealth Edison uh, scandal. In this case, uh, Clarence Thomas's wife, uh, was getting money quietly from <laughs> Kellyanne Conway. I mean, it's so twisted and bizarre uh, for services rendered. We don't even know what exactly she did on behalf of some right-wing uh, advocacy group that trying to promote conservative judges. And then these judges, uh, and then these conservatives would be before uh, Clarence Thomas with their cases. I, I don't know how that's any significantly different than what Michael Joseph Madigan and his cohorts did. Uh, it's and yet not. Clarence Thomas is sailing. Go ahead. It's not. But the, the question in this case is, um, do how are Supreme Court justices held accountable? And is there going to be ever a mechanism to hold them accountable? That's the problem, that we don't have something in place to hold Supreme Court justices accountable. We do have, um, you know, the criminal justice system to hold, you know, I guess, you know, politicians accountable. Does it always work? No. And you raise a good point when there are certain um, politicians who are able to get away with it. But a lot of people would argue that Michael Madigan got away with it for many, many years and the law finally caught up to him. I think just this question is like, how do you hold Supreme Court justices accountable? And for years, you know, the thinking is that these are respected justices who serve on the highest court of the land. So maybe people think that they're not infallible, but um, obviously, you know, Justice uh, Clarence Thomas isn't the only one. I mean, he's the one that has the most allegations stacked up against him, but there's other justices who in the last few days, um, a lot of information has surfaced that they have also been engaged in um, unethical, you know, behavior or at least one of their spouses. Um, Neil Gorsuch, I think there's some sort of real estate deal and Justice Roberts, um, there was some question about his wife, and I'm forgetting the fourth one, but there's also someone else that um, also had questionable conduct in the last few days within 
within the last few months at the very least. And, and with Clarence Thomas and his wife, his wife has been kind of in the news for a long time about, um, you know, and there's been questions raised about her ties to like certain right wing groups and whether that influences, uh, you know, Clarence Thomas and the way he rules things. But, you know, just with that ProPublica story and his ties to, um, is it Harlan Crow? Is that how you pronounce his name? Um, and just those sort of allegations. And then we have the new allegations against how he had Harlan Crow or Harlan Crow paid for his um, nephew's schooling at a boarding school. And then we hear about uh, the latest thing with Kellyanne Conway and uh, the connection to Kellyanne Conway and this activist with uh, Ginny Thomas. It's just, just like one thing after another. And so you wonder, um, is Clarence Thomas going to step down? No, I don't think so. And, and, the, and the interesting thing is like, well, you know, the Supreme Court justices, they serve a life term until they step down, right? It's like they don't, they can't leave, right? It's like they're just, they're there forever. And so I think, I think the government need, you know, like we, there has been discussion about um, what needs to be done with the Supreme Court. And I think that discussion and action needs to take, take place swiftly because, you know, we have these judges making decisions about the rest of us while they're able to do whatever they want without being held accountable. And, it, and it, it's just pretty, it's pretty ridiculous if you ask me. And uh, I, I, you know, I have to tell you, and I mentioned this to you the other day via text, um, I was a college student when uh, the Anita Hill hearings took place. And I was skeptical of Clarence Thomas back then. And then we have people like your boy Biden, like scolding Anita Hill. And, <laughs> you know, and it's and it's just like ridiculous. It's like, you know, why? Why did anybody think that this man was like, you know, there was a point where both Democrats and Republicans were like hailing this man, like as if he, you know, it's like, oh, we had one black justice leave. So let's replace him with another man who looks like who looks the part. It's like, I don't know. It, it, it's it's just ridiculous. I, I, I no. had a bad feeling about him back then. And then, you know, it reminded me of the I don't know if you remember the Chris Rock joke from then um, on SNL. <laughs> it was it was pretty funny. It made everybody laugh. Um, Chris Rock said that um, nobody would ever heard about uh, Clarence Thomas if um, he looked like Denzel Washington. He said it was all about looks. That's what he said. He goes, if, if he goes, if Denzel, if a guy that looked like Denzel Washington made the same comments to Anita Hill, it would be a little different. She'd probably be giggle and walk away. But I mean, it was funny. I, I did make me laugh at the time. But I think I think that behavior at the time was unacceptable. And every there were people acting like Clarence Thomas was like being dragged by Anita Whoa. Hill. And I mean, I, I just, yeah. I'm just saying that I watched it as, you know, I wasn't watching it probably as seriously as you were. I was a college student at the time. So I was kind of like paying attention to it, reading about it. I probably wasn't reading about it as much as I should have, but I did, I do remember that feeling of like, Oh, like there was so much gray area. You know what I mean? It was like, it was like nobody, you know, just, it was just kind of like a common theme. Nobody, you know, the woman is always questioned and her stories always, the one that's like has all these like gray, you know, parts to it. And meanwhile, Clarence Thomas is this like upstanding man who just wants to be on the Supreme court. And this woman's like, just, you know, just, I, I just remember just reading things. And I think, um, Anita Hill, you know, she's kind of 
you know, we hear about her. We don't hear about her. She's not someone who like relishes the spotlight, but you know, she's the one who had stuff to lose. And, um, I just thought, I just remember, uh, thinking that, uh, she got the raw end of the deal and Clarence Thomas was just seen as this like martyr at, at that's how I felt at the time. I don't know if I was, you know, perceiving all of this information correctly. Cause again, like I said, I, I was looking at it from like, you know, as a, as someone who was younger, not necessarily reading all the stories, not as a journalist, at, at least not a professional journalist at the time. Yeah. I, um, uh, I don't remember Chris Rock's joke. <laughs> yeah, uh, you have to look it up. It was famous. It was famous. Yeah, I, I, but I got to say, he's heading into Donald Trump country with that joke because Donald Trump, of course, said if you're a celebrity, you can uh, get away with grabbing women by their pussies and nobody's going to care. And it's kind of the joke that Chris Rock uh, is making. Uh, but it's all part of the trivialization. A joke like that is all part of the trivialization of what Anita Hill's accusation was against Clarence Thomas. And I, so I'm not really laughing at Chris Rock's joke. He's not, not every Chris Rock joke is funny in my own opinion. No, no, I agree. I don't, Uh, I I, I don't agree with him a lot of times, especially when it comes to stuff related to women. I just feel like he has like a very older man's perspective about things, very old fashioned, but I did laugh at it. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I did laugh at it at the time when <laughs> I was like, okay. you can look it up, Listen, look it up, look it up. Denzel Washington. I've laughed at, L- look you at, don't want to know. Yeah. Look up Denzel uh, Washington and Clarence Thomas after you're done. And Chris Rock. Clarence Thomas, to me, his, uh, elevation to the Supreme court was one of the most cynical, is the, I always say this, his most cynical act, I think, and that's saying a lot because I spent a lot of time in Chicago with Rahm and Daly and all their cynical behavior. But I mean, so here's a man who has a lifelong opposition to affirmative action. In fact, one of the cases uh, that he ruled on that the people who put his wife, get, uh, got money to his wife, uh, delivered money to his wife on was, um, they supported him on was about uh, anti-affirmative action. So he's against affirmative action. Uh, he does not believe uh, that we should in any way try uh, to confront the fact that we are a country that has this legacy of slavery uh, and Jim Crow and discrimination. He's vehemently against it. And he was the beneficiary of affirmative action. There was a black man on the Supreme Court, Thurgood Marshall. Uh, he stepped down from the Supreme Court. And so George Bush said, I need a black man to replace him. And that is affirmative action, ladies and gentlemen. And he picked a black man who would do the bidding of white people to destroy affirmative action. It's totally cynical. And then when he got in trouble, the guy who says, I never want to use race as an excuse for anything. When Anita Hill came forward and uh, testified as to this, the, his misbehavior toward her, he said he was the victim of a uh, electric lynching. He was the, suddenly, he he was sobbing. He was sobbing more than Steph Curry does uh, when the referees make a call against the Golden State Warriors. Sobbing like a little baby. So it's like, I, he, this guy is such a hypocrite. And you know what? He would take a look at me getting so uh, red in the face about this, and he would laugh and go, I'm on the Supreme Court, and my wife's getting paid off. <laughs> I'm getting flown around. <laughs> So, ah, I hear you. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not black, but I I just, okay, as a person who is a person of color, 
it's like Clarence Thomas. You look at those pictures of him with Harlan Crow. He's the only black guy hanging out with these crusty old white dudes. And you're sitting there thinking, like, really, seriously, do you have any black friends? Like, personally, as a South Asian person, if, okay, there's some South Asians who grew up in small towns and they had no choice. They can only have friends who, like, you know, are white or, like, you know, it's not very racially diverse. But if you live in a big city or in a place where there's all kinds, you know, or have access to people who are all, like, different, like a diverse community... I'm suspect of someone who's South Asian and has no South Asian friends. I just, you know, it's one thing if they, if they just have white friends, I really think there's something wrong with them. Like, I, I think, I, I think there's something wrong with them. And I feel like Clarence Thomas, does he have any black friends? I would, I'm just curious. Wait, so what, what do you think is wrong with them? Well, I just feel like, I just feel like, how can you be someone who's South Asian and you don't find anything common with another South Asian person? I mean, I have to tell you, when I go into a newsroom and uh, (laughs) another South Asian person sees me, it's kind of like we both look at each other and we're like, whoa, you know, then we we start chatting and, you know, this happens. And and that's like, it's it's a natural response. I know that happens with uh, black people. They see another black person and they give a head nod, you know, so it happens to a lot of us who are people of color who work in mostly white spaces. I have to tell you, um, we have temporary, we have, um, not temp- we have a temporary, or we have office, um, we have office space at Navy Pier, obviously, because we're uh, partners with WBZ, but we have office space at the old uh, post office as well. And uh, I was in there, <laughs> um, like a couple months back, and this young woman who was Bangladeshi, she's actually from Bangladesh, she sees me in the bathroom, and she got really excited. And she's like, Oh, like, she was excited to see another brown person. And and I'm like, it's 2023. She's like, I never, I've never seen another, another brown person <laughs> in this building. And I'm like, oh, there's tons of them. And then she was just so excited. And then, you know, she added me on LinkedIn and, you know, we were hanging out. Like when she's like, she's probably like 20 to 20 to 25 years younger than me. And she's all excited. So I just feel like people who don't see that kinship with people who look like them or other people of color, they're just there's just there's just something suspect about them. I feel like they're probably self-hating Indians. That's because I grew up I grew up at a time in the 70s where um there were I, I, there were Indian people in my school. We all had in the 70s and 80s we all had that one Indian person at school or one South Asian person at school that didn't want to hang out with the rest of us and they just wanted white friends. They pretended they weren't South Asian and didn't know anything about South Asian culture. If they were Muslim, they pretended they didn't know anything about Muslim culture. And it really affected them. When they grew up, they became totally different because they realized what they were doing was like denying who they were. And so I kind of feel like that's what's going on with Clarence Thomas. He's been accepted or he feels like he's been accepted by this certain segment, by the, by the, um, you know, white majority. And maybe it's, it feels good to him, you know, because as a black man, he probably didn't feel that as a younger person. And now he feels legitimacy and he's just kind of, you know, decided that, that yeah, this is what I'm going to do and stick with. And I'm going to say whatever, you know, this group wants me to say to a certain segment of the population. So it's, it's, it's part of me, it thinks it's really sad. You know what I mean? Because I've said I've seen this within people of my own community. And like I said, I don't know what it's like to be a black person, but I know what it's like to be a person of color. And I just think that if you're just hanging out and doing 
what this other group wants you to do that doesn't have your, your necessarily your community's best interest. It's just kind of bizarre. And, and I'm not saying that you every single black person or everybody single South Asian has to think the same way that you can only have like, you know, friends of that race. You can have friends of all kinds of races, but it's, it's a little suspect when you, when you have pictures of yourself with just all these other like rich old white dudes and you're sitting there, you know, it's just, and it's fine. If he, if he, if, if I saw pictures of him like hanging out with other, you know, his, his black family, and maybe there are pictures of those and I'm just not, you know, I have tunnel vision and I'm not seeing them, but I really rarely see Clarence Thomas with, um, with, um, a group of black people or black people hanging out or anything like that. And so it's, it's relatively sad. And like we said, you, it's a big business and it's obviously being on the Supreme courts on a business, but um, being that person that looks like a certain way and says what, you know, a certain part of the white population wants you to say it, it really pays like you, you can, you totally become like a famous person and a figure in this country, oh, you can make a career yeah. out of it. And so, um, so yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's kind of crazy, but, um, I don't know. I, I, I think the Clarence Thomas thing isn't going to go away. And I think something needs to be done. I think, uh, something, the politicians need to do something about putting something and putting laws in place or putting some sort of accountability measures in place so that the Supreme court justices can be held accountable when they are, um, you know, when there are allegations of them engaging in unethical conduct, because this is getting ridiculous at this point right now. And like I said, you know, everybody was crying. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people were crying when uh, people were protesting outside uh, the Supreme Court justices houses, like saying, oh, leave them alone. And it's like, well, look at what you're doing. I mean, you know what I mean? That's like nothing compared to the allegations that are being lobbied against you. It's 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 just it's a sad state of affairs, I think, in this country right now. And I, I think a lot of things need to be fixed. And this is one of them. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that was a great riff, by the way. Uh, and it was I don't know if you wrote it. There was a good editorial in the Sun-Times on this very subject of establish some kind of rules and regulations and guidelines. The Supreme Court just thinks it's above everything. Uh, they don't have to. Justice uh, Roberts won't even attend the Senate uh, investigate hearing on the matter. He sent, uh, like he said, this vague statement of uh, governing principles, uh, the arrogance. This this is the, I this may be one of the most arrogant statements uh, I've read in a long time, which is, it's just so, patronizing in so many ways so this goes this is from the washington post uh, by the way i should have given them credit in the first place they're the ones who broke the story uh about uh kellyanne conway and Ginny thomas and clarence thomas and leonard leo who um was is the uh conservative activist who's trying to uh fill the courts with right wingers uh so um <clears throat> the key point which i left out uh in this particular show uh, i took a deep dive into in another show uh, is that uh, Leonard Leo asked uh, Kellyanne Conway to make sure that Ginny Thomas's name was not on any of the checks that they wrote uh, or, or was not anywhere where it could be found and discovered so that she would get her money, but nobody would know there would be no record that she got her money, which if that's not illegal, I am, <laughs> <laughs> it I mean, ought to be. Okay, I mean, so clear, here I is, mean, 
clearly you know here, you're doing something wrong if you're like, oh, keep that name out of there, right? So. No. Okay. So, all right. That's that's what a normal human being would say. <laughs> yeah. Here's here's Leonard Leo's explanation as to why he ordered uh, or instructed Kellyanne Conway not to put Ginny uh, Thomas's name uh, anywhere on the records, even though she received money. Um, of the efforts to keep Thomas's name off paperwork, Leo said, "Quote." Knowing how disrespectful, malicious, and gossipy people can be, I have always tried to protect the privacy of Justice Thomas and Ginny, end of quote. I'm like, dude, you can't use that as a just, that's not a legitimate justification. You don't want her to be embarrassed, so you're just going to conceal it? I t- that's not how it works. If she got the money, she has to. You have to report it. If Clarence Thomas's wife got money from people who are bringing cases before Clarence Thomas, he has to report it. And if people have gossip about it or they're upset about it, they rant and rave about it on a podcast. So be it. It's no justification. Oh, I didn't want any criticism against the mayor, so I'm not going to say I paid the mayor a bribe. Can you imagine that as a defense in a court? It's such an absurd defense, Romana, and yet he feels like he can get away with it, like it's justifiable. It's so arrogant. I, <laughs> it, it makes me laugh, and yet I get you 50% of the country is going to be repeating it. You know, the MAGA part of the country will be repeating it. Uh, for, can you imagine someone in Illinois offering that up as a defense as to why, uh, you know, they didn't reveal that they gave money to this politician or that politician? I don't think the reporters in Chicago would put up with that. Do you? No, no. And then and then the Republicans would talk about how corrupt Chicago is because that's what they tend to do. Right. So um, that would be another way to bash Chicago. Um, yeah. You know, so it's 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 just basically hypocrisy. By the way, I I mean, that was a great riff you did about self-haters. And uh, I just I know we should probably move on to other things. But like at, I, this is the start of a whole other conversation, which you probably but like what is what fuels, in your humble opinion, the impulse of self-hate? Um, acceptance. Um, when you grow up as someone who's othered. Um, you're always made to feel like an outsider. Like I grew up, I was born in the seventies and it was not cool to be Indian at all. Like at all, like it's so cool now, but it was not in seventies and eighties. Everybody made fun of us. And that's why cultural appropriation, Indian people get so annoyed with cultural appropriation because the same people that were making fun of us (laughs) for doing things are now doing everything that we did. And they acted like they invented half of our culture. So it really makes us mad when we see it. I mean, I've seen people that I grew up with in high school, like they made fun of me for being Indian. And now they're all like, Oh, you know, we're wearing grateful dead t-shirts. And that's what I told, I I was telling my husband, Mick, uh, I think that's one reason I don't like the grateful dead that much because I grew up with a lot of people in high school who love the grateful dead and not all of them. Cause I'm friends with some of them. There was like this whole revival, but like the worst mean people in our school who would like, you know, treat everybody like crap were the ones who were wearing the tie-dye shirts. And then like, you know, now they didn't wear the Indian stuff now, but now it's like, I see them on Facebook because, you know, they decided to be friends with me on Facebook and not all of them because of so we're hearing this, but it's like, you know, they're wearing Indian gear. One, one girl who I know 
uh, when I was younger, uh, told me that Marshall Fields was not a good store anymore because she said, no offense, Indians are going there now. Um, she, she <laughs> no couple, <laughs> yeah, a couple years ago, and, and she was my friend a couple years ago. Um, <laughs> she went, told me how she went to India and loved it. And it's like, it's great, but it's just like, okay, being, you know, it's like being an outsider. you feel like you, you're always <laughs> going to feel like an outsider when you're a person of color. And there were times, especially in Clarence Thomas is obviously older than me. So I can't imagine what it's like to be a black man, but I think it's that, that level of, of acceptance, yeah. That, um, you know, oh, wow, you know, these people are giving you an importance and make you feel like you're an in crowd. Like when I was a, when I was a kid, like being Indian, like automatically meant that you were not going to be part of the cool group. If you were a person yeah. of color at my school, you were not going to be part of the cool group at all. And if you were willing to if you were accepted by a few people in the, the cool group, the cool kids, um, you had to be someone that pretended that they thought the other people that looked like you were lame. And so, yeah, I did. I, there were always that one or two people. There were people of color that got accepted to the cool group and they would make fun of the rest of us or like kind of acted like they were better than the rest of us. So it's like that acceptance level. And so um, we had words called for people like um, um, Mick tells me that I can't use the word uncle Tom, but um, like we would call other Indians who were um sellouts we'd call them potatoes and uh <laughs> potatoes and uh, what was the other word um coconuts because you're brown on the and a, a lot of latino people told me they would use that same word and twinkies east asians would use and bananas they would use because you're yellow on the outside and white on the inside and for black people it was oreos so we all had these terms so like i remember the first time a family friend of mine he was older than me he was telling telling me that someone was a coconut and i'm like what does that mean and he goes he goes brown on the outside white on the inside so um you know we we indian south asians have a lot of those in our in our like in politics you know you look at uh the nikki haley's and uh the bobby jindals i have to actually give you a link to this comedian's uh work uh, have you ever heard of this comedian called hari ondabalu he actually, um, he's a great comedian. I'm going to send you a link to his show. Uh, he has, he has a special that's aired a couple of weeks ago. And I think you'd really like it. And he, he has jokes in there that are particular to Indian people. And I think you'll get a lot of it, Ben, because I talk to you about it a lot. Um, and so he, he, he mentions both of those <laughs> in, in the show and AOC. He also mentions AOC at the end. You got it. You got to check it out. I'm going to send you the link as soon as I can, but let me give you for your listeners. I will tell them what it is if they want to watch it, but he's, he's the comedian that, um, had a whole documentary on, um, the Simpsons character Apu. Oh, and yeah. so mm -hmm. recently, he, recently um, he and Hank Azaria actually got together on a podcast called Code Switch and they kind of hashed it out. And Hank Azaria realized, because, um, you know, in the beginning he was pushing back about um, how he felt and, you know, why he didn't think it was that offensive. And, and then, you know, he started listening and he, re he saw the documentary and he's like, Oh my God, I, I, I can't believe you know, you got death threats for, you know, saying stuff like that. And so they kind of hashed it out. And I think you'd really like this uh, comedian. Anyway, he um, has, so his new special is called Vacation Baby and it's on YouTube. And I'll send you a link to it um, as soon as um, I, I get off on this podcast. But he kind of, he, he kind of touches upon um, some of that, I think, or, you know, he at least talks about, you know, being made fun of because he's Indian and he's younger than me. 
So I don't know. Well, I just think it's a level of acceptance, you know, people putting you on a pedestal. I mentioned this to you too, Ben, like after 9-11, there was a group of people who are Muslim. I mean, they were lifted by the left and the right as like these like, oh, here are these Muslim reformers. They weren't reformers. They were just pe- people who hate, you know, self-hated themselves. And people thought that they were like, oh, these are the open-minded um, moderate Muslims. And they were like, they were terrible people. Like nobody in the community liked them, but they became famous and they still have a name. And they, they've been able to like, you know, make money off of and, and write books and get put on the pedestal. And so, hey, if, it, if you, it helps you advance your career and become famous and become beloved by like, you know, the average American Joe, this is what some people are willing to give up. And I knew from a young age, like, you know, hey, there weren't times, there were definitely times I wished I was like everyone else. And, you know, I wished I was cool. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I think I think because I grew up in a big city like Chicago, I mean, I didn't grow up with a lot of, you know, all of my friends, like, we all were like, a lot of times, like maybe one of two or three handful of Indian kids or Muslim kids in our school. But we also were part of a larger community. So when we went to the mosque, we saw each other. And so I think that was helpful to us. So we never, you know, even though we had like our insecurities, uh, none of us were really that embarrassed about who we are, who we were and who we are. So I think that helped. And I'm very thankful that I grew up in a big city and not a small town because I think I would be a totally different person. And I would totally have, I would, and I, I think a lot of people who grew up in small towns, like they have that sense of pride, but a lot of them, a lot of Indian people and a lot of Muslim people who I know grew up, especially in the seventies and eighties in small towns, they just said that they really missed out on having other people who look like them and they felt really insecure in um, school. And, and you well, know, we had the same thing, but it was a little different because we had the outlet on the weekends. Uh, as long as we're on this topic, I got to get your opinion of this uh this man who's running for president, Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, <laughs> uh, and Monroe and I did a whole take on him a little while ago. Everybody can check out that. He was the guy who was, had the exchange with Don Lemon uh, that I think, uh, well, there's probably a lot of reasons why CNN, CNN's moving to the right anyway. But uh, anyway, uh, they, that was put out there as an example of how Don Lemon had gone too far. I didn't think he went too far at all. In fact, I think this guy Vivek is insane. Uh, but anyway, I routinely get emails from this guy. I don't know why me, of all people, I get emails from him at least once a day. And here's the here's the greeting. This is the latest email. Hi, fellow conservative. <laughs> to me. <laughs> My name is Vivek Ramaswamy, and I am running for president of the United States. Here's why. Wokeness is a virus infecting every sphere of American life, but I am on a mission to eradicate that virus from our culture. Meanwhile, Democrats are seeking to divide us further and make us forget about all the reasons that we are proud to be Americans. The radical left is obsessed with wokeness and gender ideology. They want to divide you based on race, gender, and political views. That's wrong. I'm running for president to revive our shared American national identity and restore the ideals of merit. And then, hey, kick me some money. Um, and so there he is. I don't know if you've I don't know if you've ever received uh, emails. No, I don't. Sorry, I don't get. He probably knows I'm not one of the Indians that would like him. But thoughts on him um, and his message. Yeah. First of all, I have to tell you that I don't I don't re- necessarily agree with a lot of stuff that Don Lemon has said. He has raised controversy in the past. He said stuff about 
Muslims. He said stuff about, um, I know he, he's, you know, kind of gave Bill Cosby-esque lectures to young black men to on air. So I kind of don't agree with everything he said, but I have to say that on this case, I was just like, I, I, I agreed with Don Lemon. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was just like, where's this guy coming from? And he's not even, the thing is like, he's not even that old. He's like, like in his thirties and it's like, Oh God, you're like, that's what I mean. And we're talking about this, Ben. I mean, he's speaking to a certain segment of the population by talking about the woke mob. I'm like, calm down. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's just like, I don't know. I just look at the guy and I'm just like, and I heard, I saw his exchange on CNN after he saw him and saw me and I'm uh, send it to me. And I was just like, God, give me a break. I had to roll my eyes. I don't think he's going to, I don't think his campaign is going to get that far. That's my um, opinion. But, you know, he's, he's definitely riding that wave of like, Hey, look, I'm a person of color and I'm tired of the woke mob. And, you know, an American is American. And I don't see myself as like, you know, Indian, I see myself as an American and it's, 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 it's tiresome. And then, and I know a lot of Indian people do not feel the same way. And it's, um, it's it's just uh, it's just kind of like embarrassing, and and you kind of wonder like, what if this guy was an Indian who didn't say stuff like that? Would he even get airtime? I don't know. I, I mean, it's like, what if he was someone that you know? Because he's not like this big name that everybody knows. If I run that name by in the newsroom, half of the half, I'm sure seventy five percent of pe- the people in my newsroom would look at me like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> But um, you know what I mean? It's just like, why is he on air? It's kind of like how I, like, we were talking about the in 2000s or late 90s. Like When I used to look on TV, the only person that was South Asian talking or you know on, on shows like Bill Maher was like Dinesh D'Souza. And it's like, he did not represent me as an Indian person. And he was the Indian, he was the Indian voice like mm-hmm. for a long time. And it was just like, oh my God. And, um, I don't know. I, I, I haven't, so I, I think I can honestly say, I can say without hesitation that I'm, I, you know, I try not to talk about who I'm going to vote for, but I'm not going to vote for this guy. <laughs> I think <laughs> well, he thinks I am. He can, yeah, he, I know. He, he thinks you are. He thinks you're a fellow I mean, conservative. So uh, yeah. Yeah. Hi, fellow conservative. <laughs> uh, I get so many of them, uh, but he's particularly, uh, He's particularly persistent. I, I would say, I, don't know, I want to say one a day, but maybe it's uh, more like one every other day. Uh, anyway, I don't know if he's self-hating. I, I do know. Oh, um, come on. It's like he has all the signs. For like for a South Asian, I'm like, God, you know, he's, he's totally, <laughs> I mean, he is. I mean, I, I, I'm going to find quotes from you that will tell, tell you I mean, within like five minutes Later tonight, Ben, I'll send you things that he said and things about him get, that makes me realize that he does not like himself. And you know, right, this is, you know, a self-hating person is different from someone who's critical of their community because, like, you know, I'm part of different communities, and we, you know, healthy criticism is one thing, but just throwing your whole community on the bus under the bus and not seeing the nuances and saying the worst that can be said about your group um, yeah. is 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 not something i find acceptable uh by the way um i also get emails on a regular basis uh from nikki haley and this one is fellow conservative you've 
heard what Don Lemon and Whoopi Goldberg have to say about me, but I want to tell you my story for myself. After you finish reading this, please consider chipping in a donation of any amount to my team. I am the proud daughter of legal immigrants, okay, as opposed to the bad immigrants. I grew up in a small town in South Carolina. Uh, I started doing the books at my mom's store at 13. My mom had an American flag painted on a ceiling in her store. She wanted everyone to know how much she loved this country. I am a proud Clemson. I can't read anymore. I get, yeah, I get it's like, hurt. you know, and you know, <laughs> my mom put, you know, after 9-11, my mom, she went to like Home Depot or something. And my mom is like 4'11". She's just under five feet. And then she walks in with this like big flag that's like bigger than her. This is after 9-11. And she's like, struggling with this pole and put it in our put it in our front yard and my brother's like um so are you putting that flag because you're proud to be an american or are you just scared shitless you know so it it was it was kind of funny my, i mean who, you know we i mean who doesn't have an american flag you know what i mean i guess i don't know the sad thing is like when you look i i i know this is wrong for me to say but now when i see an american flag i'm a little worried like if i see someone waving the american flag and in, in, like, because you look at the Capitol riots, like I, for example, like I, a couple of days ago, I was um, looking for some pictures about democracy. And, you know, I thought American flags represents democracy. It was helping my boss, Lorraine Forte, put an op-ed in, in, in our system. And every time I looked up <laughs> American flag pictures, it was pictures of like either the Proud Boys or, you know, people at the Capitol riots or people who are, um, fighting against like uh, critical race theory, like waving the American flag. So I know it's wrong for me to say that, but sometimes when I see someone with too many American flags, I, I kind of get a little worried. <laughs> so, well, and I'm not saying, I, you know, Ben, if I saw you with an American flag, I won't be worried, but I'm just saying <laughs> that like, I yeah. do get a little worried about it. Like if somebody's yeah. a little too like, you know, red, white, and blue, like it just worries me a little. Uh well, I could tell you right now, as the uh, recipient of dozens and dozens of fundraising requests from conservative politicians, I, again, I do not know why I am the lucky man. I guess it's me because so that you don't get them. Uh, but they are always wrapping themselves in the American flag uh, and condemning everybody as anti-American who disagrees with them. Uh, and that brings me to this. Uh, the debate in at South Shore over a sanctuary at South Shore High School. Uh, in today's Sun Times, a good article. I want to give a shout out to uh, uh, who wrote the article? Emmanuel, Emmanuel Camarillo. Yeah, Emmanuel Camarillo. Good job. Uh, and uh, sanctuary school plan slammed at South Shore. And there's a picture uh, of someone holding up an American flag. And so it's like they wanted to make it clear that they're Americans. But that the people who are seeking refuge are not Americans. Uh, and so much of the rhetoric was straight out of Trump. Uh, the, very, I'm, listen, I believe MAGA has made inroads in Chicago. I believe the Paul Vallis campaign uh, was MAGA. I believe so many liberal Democrats fooled themselves, uh, Dick Durbin at the top of the list, uh, and embarrassed themselves by endorsing Paul Vallis and Lakefront liberals. Shame, shame on you for falling that. You're going to uh, be good. Tom Tunney at the top of that list. Uh, but this this is in the black community. And um, so MAGA, MAGA's making inroads. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. Um, so I wrote the editorial that's going to be in Sunday's paper about this and, um, I read it and I, it just made me, um, sad that, you know, this is, um, there was one guy even holding, uh, a sign that said, uh, close the borders or like, I forgot what, but it's basically, oh no, build the wall. I think it said build the wall 2024. Um, there were people saying things like close the border. We don't care. Um, and there were other things that were being said uh, during this meeting. And one of the things that um, I think with the whole Donald Trump, the rise of Donald Trump and MAGA was that there was this whole push and strain. And I'm not saying like all the entire black community, you know, was like behind this, but there was definitely a narrative with Trump's campaign when he was running in 2016 that this really isn't about um, black Americans. It's about brown people invading our country. And um, a lot of people who are right wing in this country, they would like any more. Uh, they, they like the fact that there are these divisions in the black and brown Asian community. The more divisions there are, the better. So yeah, they did make inroads in pushing that narrative because when you have a bunch of people on the South shore and, and I also want to point out that not everybody at this meeting was, you know, was this way. There were people who wanted to listen to what the officials had to say about making this empty school, um, uh, temporary housing for the migrants. And, um, you know, there has been a historic neglect of the South side. Let's not deny that. But it's sad that, you know, these migrants are people who are who are running away from desperate situations and they're not being housed in these like luxury, like penthouse suites at, at the Palmer House. We're becoming so desperate right now. We're using police stations and living in a school that's not made to house people is not like this envious position to be in. So it's 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 kind of sad that, you know, that people are, you know, are, are seeing this as a us versus them thing when we should be seeing it as like, let's open our arms. And, and it is frustrating. Don't get me wrong. I do think that the city has a lot of challenges and we're going to see a lot more challenges. I think as it gets warmer, I mean, Greg Abbott is just sending, uh, so many people here all the time. We can't, you know, as a city, it's hard. We're getting fewer and fewer spaces to find, where these individuals can be sheltered. So it is going to be a frustrating road, but instead of people getting angry about it, let's come together and find solutions. But some of the rhetoric that we heard at this, or we heard about at the South shore meeting, it just sounded like it was a MAGA rally. It, yeah, it, it just like sounded it. like a MAGA rally. And, and I think that's really sad. It didn't sound like something that you would hear in a city like Chicago that embraces its racial and ethnic diversity. And I, I'm just gonna push back a little bit before we close it down. I had this conversation. Everybody should check it out with Adolfo Mondragon on Tuesday. We took the deep dive in this. Uh, the city says they've received eight thousand asylum seekers. Eight thousand. We've Chicago's lost population well over a hundred thousand. I forget the exact numbers over the last ten years. There's a lot of space in Chicago. There's a lot of vacant lots in the city of Chicago. There's a lot of abandoned buildings in the city of Chicago. And furthermore, it was just four years ago that the city was moving heaven and earth, paying untold offering, untold billions of dollars to Amazon if they would move 50,000 workers here. For, so somehow or other, we could accommodate 50,000 Amazon workers, but 8,000 asylum seekers is just blowing our minds. 
And I say this knowing, Ramana, I always say this, like, I'm just some guy in my attic. I couldn't organize a poker game. So the, just the concept of me minimizing uh, the task uh, that these people, uh, the city officials are facing uh, is a little absurd. On the other hand, that's what they do. That's their freaking jobs. You know what I'm saying? They they were going to accommodate 50,000. One more time, Ramana. 50,000 Am- Amazon workers. No problem. Come to Chicago. Anyway. All right. We're going to close with with me saying this to you. Um, I finished watching Beef on Netflix. On Netflix, excuse me. Uh, I'm holding off on what I thought about it, I th- although you know. And um, I know you haven't watched it because you're respectful of the rules and regulations that govern watching shows with Mick Dumpke, my dear friend who I love very much. Uh, Mick is very slow when it comes to watching shows. I think there's a designated day a week that he allots to watching a show. So there's 10 episodes of Beef. That means you will not get through with it. Until September, if you follow the Mick Dumpke plan. So I'm urging you to find another show to watch with Mick every Saturday or whatever it is, the allotted day, and do your classic Ramana Hussein binge so we can take the deep dive on beef. It is well worth taking the deep dive on many levels, good and bad. Your thoughts about my proposal? Um. <laughs> I, I, this is what I'm hoping. Okay. Well, this is the best case scenario. I don't want to watch it without him because he said he wanted to watch it, but I have a feeling that he's going to bail. So if he bails after the first episode, <laughs> I'm going to watch it within two days. So that's my plan. If he wants to watch it, then it, then it will be. But I, I mean, I'm trying not to read about it because everybody I know, you know, obviously I've heard about the controversy with David Cho if I'm hopefully I'm pronouncing his name right, I've been following that, but I try not to read too much about the show because everybody I know so far has told me they loved it. You're the only one who I know had to stop in the middle, but then kind of went back and watched it. And I don't think you regret it. So no, take that, kind of out of that sentence. Yeah. Yeah. I so that, go back yeah. And so and that, I went back. That, yes, that, that gives me hope. And so I'm, I, I don't know. We'll see. We have to see what happens. No. You have to talk to you know your what friend. It gives me hope for that Mick will watch the first show and not like it. <laughs> and then you're free to watch it. Well, he, uh, gives, he gives up easily on shows and we don't necessarily always agree on things. And it's some, sometimes his reasoning for not liking shows make no sense. So okay, I'm not going to disparage him. Mick, you're not going to like this show. Trust me, you won't like it. You'll you'll be bored by it. You'll be hostile to it. Instead, you should watch the Reggie Jackson documentary <laughs> on HBO. You're gonna like that. You're gonna like Reggie Jackson. You won't like beef. I know you. Okay. Plus, <sighs> Mick is really up to his eyeballs with NBA basketball. Okay. And so uh, there's that no. goes on through. I got news for you. Ramana, you are very loyal and patient. I got to give you a lot of credit. Yeah, I <laughs> am. I am. By the rules and uh, regulations. No, and so I usually I, trust me when I watch shows. Like, like I was telling him about Yellow Jackets the other day. And he's like, "You watch that show?" And I'm like, "Yeah." <laughs> and then he's just like, "Oh, because I heard the music was really good in it." And I'm like, "Yeah, that's fine. I'm already on season two. Like, if you want to watch it, you you're on your own." Like, he doesn't watch anything on his own. I, so if we're gonna watch a show together, it's like. I usually have to get him into it. Like he loves Ted Lasso. If I didn't tell him to watch it, he probably won't watch it. But it's like, <laughs> well, 
So I don't yeah, know. Here's the I, other thing. I'm still, here's I'm, yeah, I'm still trying to get him to finish our, our, the zombie show. Like he's like, I don't like here, zombies. Here's the other thing you could do. Yeah, you so. could binge watch it and then pre- don't let him know that you've <laughs> that's watched what, it. That's, that's what my younger sister told me to do. She goes, oh, just pretend, pretend you're all surprised by everything. Just yeah. watch and it. By the way, it's, in my opinion, worth watching twice just to see what they did and how they did it. And a shout out to the writers. I'm going to close this by saying, I'm speaking for myself, not necessarily Romana. I'm with you 100%. I think what the producers are doing is outrageous. They want to destroy. It's another example of how they want to, in this country, capitalists want to destroy the middle class. I don't know why you hate the middle class so much. You want to replace writers with machines. So all you striking writers, screenwriters out there, you're the ones who write the scripts that are so entertaining. You're the ones who wrote beef and yeah. thoughtful and provocative. It, and the acting is sensational. I'm not minimizing the acting, but it's it starts with a script. In my opinion, it always starts with a script because the greatest writers and the greatest actors in the world, if you give them crummy lines, Romana, they look like they're trying too hard. You know, it's yeah. just, uh, so I'm with the writers 100%. Come on, producers, stop being so freaking cheap. All right, that's my take. You, you want to add anything before I let you go? No, no. Um, I still have to watch a lot of movies. I still want to watch that air movie about the Michael Jordan. Uh, my brother saw it last week, and he said, "Yeah, you know, whenever they show Michael Jordan, it's like they don't show like they don't they don't show like whoever's playing him. They don't show his face. It's just the back of him." And I think he liked it. And I I told him about Rick Tellinger's um, piece, and he agreed with it. But he said it was entertaining. Um, oh, I do want to totally see. I want to see the Are Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. But I also want to see this one movie called Polite Society. Have you heard that one? That's no, like, what's that one? yeah, sadly, again, it's it's a South Asian movie. It's made by the same director who made We Are Lady Parts. And so this is like, uh, it's about two sisters. They're Pakistani and one of them's getting married and the other sister kind of doesn't want her to get married. She, she's practicing to be a stunt woman and it got pretty good reviews. It's playing at Evanston. Um, you'll probably watch it before I will because... You're better at it, or you have a spouse that's better at um, a better <laughs> sport at like actually wanting to see things. So um, it'll probably be a while before I watch it, or if I get someone else, if I if I don't, if I decide I don't want Mick to watch it with me. So I think that's, so look up Air. Polite Society. I'll send you a link okay. to that. I uh, I will look it up and look, go see Air. It's a total. Uh, uh, Rick Talender's right. It's a uh, unabashed uh, propaganda movie for Nike. Uh, and on that level, it's all embarrassing, but <laughs> the script's pretty funny. So there you go. Good writing. Good writing. Uh, and uh, great actors who know how to deliver their lines, uh, particularly Viola Davis and Matt, da- Matt Damon. That scene they have together is worth the price of admission. Uh, all right, Romana, it was a blast. You were on fire today. Uh, so many great riffs. Thank you for taking time. I know you've been really busy today on deadlines and everything. Can't thank you enough for taking time to come on my humble show again. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. All right. That's great. Romana Hussein. I'm Ben Drowski. Take care, everybody. Bye.